Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, this is a jam-packed episode because we have the draws available and we're ready for U.S. Open action around the corners. We have a full preview episode of that. We have Paralympian Rob Shaw, who's competing in wheelchair quads down in Tokyo. I had the opportunity to speak with him. And we also have author and journalist who's been a guest with us in the past, Christopher Clary, who just wrote a new book, Master at the Long and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. So a lot to cover on this one. I feel like there's a lot going on. It's kind of like an eclectic little episode that has something for everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. If you like tennis books, then you're definitely going to want to hear what Christopher Clary has to say about this this Federer book that he's just put out. Uh, if you're interested in a Canadian international competition, then listening to Rob Shaw, uh, ninth in the world in uh, wheel- wheelchair quads, definitely going to be something of interest as well, um, as, as he's hoping to contend for a medal. And then, of course, the final Grand Slam is upon us, and you and I love delving into all of the action and uh, screwing up as many predictions as we possibly can. (laughs) And we're really screwing them up nice uh, and ahead of time because uh, we're dropping this episode on a Friday, have a couple days to let the pick set, potentially change my mind multiple times, but it'll be officially aired here um, how we're feeling about our U.S. Open picks. But uh, before we get to that, we will uh, lead with our interview and our chat with uh, author and journalist Chris Clary. Here it is. Very happy to be joined right now uh, by one of our guests for this episode um, and a longtime guest who's been with us before, Christopher Clary, uh, here to talk about his new book, which is now out called The Master, The Long and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer and on the heels of the U.S. Open, where, of course, Federer won uh, five times. Uh, Christopher, thanks so much uh, for coming back on the program and talking with us about your your latest piece, latest piece of work, which I understand took the better part of a, a couple of decades. Yeah, I guess you go start to finish. I've been thinking about writing a book like this for a long time. I just, you know, some people who are not mortal, in my opinion, are able to uh, have their full-time job and write a book on the side. I am not one of those people. <laughs> I cannot do that. So it just took me a long time to find the time to do it. And I just had to really feel like I'd have big regrets if I didn't hit this subject. And this is the one that, that I've come across in my whole career that I just felt like I'd had such great access to Roger over so many years and so many places and really to this whole era in men's tennis, which has been tremendous, as you guys know. And um, I really wanted to chronicle it as much for myself and just kind of my own memory and to have it as it was for the general audience. But of course, it's, it's a bit of both. And I just know that I kind of operate. I've said this before, but I think I like to operate more on avoiding you know, regret. I can live with disappointment, but regret's tough. And so I would really have regretted not writing this. So I've, it's out there and I did it. And it took quite a long time to finish it, a lot harder than I thought, but it, but it's there. Yeah, we know from talking to you earlier in the year, the hard work you've been putting into it. So congrats on finally arriving at release date. H- how does it feel to have it out there now? And are you happy with the end result of the project? Well, it's a little scary, actually. You know, I'm, it's one thing to put out your article on Twitter and deal with one new cycle of reaction. This is a different situation. So much time and effort goes into this. You put a lot of yourself into it. This book is written... Yeah, from a pretty personal perspective at times, obviously it's about Roger and this era in tennis, but it's sort of with my vantage point. So you, you put that out there in a way I'm not used to doing. And uh, it's a huge investment in time and sacrifice. You know, you time away from your family and typing away and late nights and meeting deadlines. And so it's, it's a, uh, you feel a little vulnerable to be honest with you when you put it out there. So I, you kind of hope that people don't 
as I've said, tattoo your baby too much, you know? And uh, well, as you said, in terms of the access that you have had, you know, chronicling Roger uh, through these 20 years and this unbelievable career and, you know, you've witnessed this uh, this meteoric rise in his dominance for so many years um, as a journalist, as a spectator, I'm sure at times. Um, from your vantage point, how much did you feel Roger Federer changed from his early career to maybe the 40-year-old Roger that, that we know today? That's a great question. I mean, the book's a lot about his evolutions. I mean, the title, The Master, is kind of about mastery, self-mastering things in yourself that you feel are are flaws or things you want to uh, accentuate. So it's really about that, the whole process of, of Roger and the people around him and how they helped him or, or didn't help him to make progress. But I feel like in some ways, I think he's changed more, you know, from start to finish in the way he is on the court than he did off the court in some ways. Of course, I mean, the guy has made a billion dollars now in total income and first tennis player to do that and living in five-star luxury or six-star luxury if they have that now. And um, it's uh, it's basically, though, the same kind of affable, accessible, kind of goofy, prankish guy who is a, a pleaser, likes to connect with his people in front of him, whether it's a conversation or an audience or whatever it is. That's, that's a big part of who he is. He's a big, empathetic person, too. And I think he needs to feel like he's connecting with people around him. That part really hasn't changed. Yes, he's more polished. He's given thousands of interviews and thousands of press conferences and met plenty of rich and famous people and shook, shake their hands and done business with them. That has to change a person, but the core is sort of the same, but his game, you know, he talked about that meteoric rise. It's an interesting expression. That might be the impression, but it really wasn't that meteoric really. And that's the biggest thing for me in the process of learning about the, about Roger's career and going back and re-reporting a lot of this stuff and talking to people again and, and re-exploring it. It was really a tough slog for him for a long time. Yes, he was talented. He got to a pretty high ranking fairly quickly. But to make that step to what he knew he had in him to be a great champion was a lot harder than it has been for some other prodigies in the game in the past. And he stayed there afterward, and that's to his full credit. And I think he stayed there partly because he had to change a lot of things in his way of operating to make that breakthrough. And those have stood him in good stead since then. This is talking about 98 to 2003. 98 was the Wimbledon junior title. We all know, looking at the list of Wimbledon champions and juniors, a lot of them don't make it at the highest level. So there was no guarantee that he would be the guy out of Roddick, Leighton Hewitt, Juan Carlos Ferrero, Murat Safin. When I was covering these guys, really, people really didn't know. And one revelation from the book was that the people who were writing the checks, the sponsors, weren't sure either. And Roger had a hard time actually uh, not making ends meet but getting what he felt he deserved in those early years because he wasn't really the guy in their mind and he hadn't proved himself. They thought he might be a, a little too shaky to make it big. So all those things were really interesting for me to go back and realize. And it kind of made me respect Roger's path all the more because he does seem like the kind of guy, even now, after all these years and fighting through injuries to come back, it still seems like it's been easy for him compared to others. And honestly, my, my opinion on that really has changed. Early in your answer there, you described his personality so well and that would come, I would imagine, with the number of times you've gotten to chat with him and interview him over the years, as it says in the liner notes here, over 20 interviews went into the making of this book. From those 20 plus interviews, is there one of those chats that stands out to you as particularly memorable that, that you really enjoyed, whether it was the, the length of the interview or the setting that you were in or, or just the quality of the answers and insight you got out of them? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a real 
inside journalism question. And it's a great, and it's a great one. I, I guess I would say the venue that will stick with me was the private plane flying from Indian Wells, kind of a last minute invitation to accompany him on a trip to Chicago. So I, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't been in too many private planes in my life. I've been in one. And that was the one time. So yeah, obviously we had to have a good reason to do it. It was to kind of cover his business dealings and the Labor Cup in Chicago and be professional about it. But it was certainly a, an amazing opportunity to get that kind of a peek into his rarefied world there and the you know, big air world of Roger. And, you know, pretty down to earth for him. It's his natural habitat. He does it not just to be cool and have a private plane, but also because it allows him to minimize all the hassles and you know, keeps him energetic and feeling better all the time. So like a lot of these things, once you're swimming in those waters, it starts to seem normal pretty quickly. And um, so I remember that. And I, I read about this in the book at the end of one of the chapters about coming back from this private plane, great interview with Roger, following him around, kind of all the luxury, and then ended up in a middle seat in economy, flying back from Chicago to Boston. Back to reality. And then I ended up missing my bus at the end. I had to slog home, bringing my rolling suitcase at 2 a.m. through my neighborhood to get back to my house. And I was just laughing, literally laughing. I was going, yeah, this is it. This is the contrast. And that trip on the... uh... That trip on the private jet, I bet you're asking the pilot to take it nice and slow to get to your destination or, <laughs> or hoping for a weather pattern to come in and move you to another airport to take more time. Yeah, we'll, we'll detour down through Texas. Let's go around the other way. Look, I don't want to go on too long, but the other thing I'd say that was in terms of the actual interview, I think um, the last interview we did before the book, really, it wasn't for the book, but it was for the Times. It was a, a whole day I spent with him in Switzerland. He was training on clay and um, watched him train. He was training with Dan Evans. He finished the first session got in his car, Mercedes drove to this restaurant he picked out in, in the Alps, walk in, all these Swiss people kind of give him a quick look, you know, and then they go back to their lunch. Very Swiss, very cool, no panic. And we sat down for a couple hours in the corner and it was just sort of the summation of all the, the contacts and interviews through the years. It was a comfortable vibe, great conversation, very wide ranging. I got to ask a lot of questions I've been wanting to ask for quite a long time. And he just sensed he was in a really good place. So I think in terms of your question about what kind of give and take was the most memorable. It would have been that one for sure. And I guess because it was sort of a, it felt like a, the culmination of something. I, I know uh, in your book, you obviously also cover um, the importance of his team and the people around him. Uh, of course, Mirka was such an important support system for him and still is. Um, the name that's come up for, for me, and I, I've seen Roger get emotional about him in the past actually was uh, coach Peter Carter, who actually died years ago in, in a car accident in 2002. And we've seen Roger get emotional in the past um, discussing Peter and reflecting on him. Did you get a chance to sort of delve deeper into that, into that relationship? Because it seemed like um, that death really was like a profound moment for, for Federer and uh, maybe, maybe kind of a, a changing moment for him too. Yeah, Ben, I mean, that was, that was a huge part of his life and his progression, no doubt about it. I mean, imagine you're 21 years old and you lose your probably most important mentor in terms of tennis. Obviously his parents are the most important influences on his life. He'd say that. But, you know, I just think the timing of it and the fact that Peter Carter was not coaching him then. Peter Carter had been the formative guy for him in his development of his game, his style, um, his belief, I think. Peter was an Australian who'd trained with some great Australian players, and he knew what was out there, and he knew Roger could make it. And Roger didn't come from a big tennis family. His, play, his parents played, but there was no pro tennis background there. So he was kind of his, his line and his uh, conduit into that rarefied world. And so I think... To lose him 
at that young age and the fact that he'd already had chosen Peter Lundgren, you know, a good Swedish player as his coach because of his experience on tour, not Peter Carter. I think he felt a lot of mixed emotions about losing him then. I think he had big plans to bring Peter Carter back into his life and his tennis world again. And he died in South Africa in a car accident, which is a country, Roger, as you may know, is a dual citizen. His mom's from South Africa. That's a big connection to that country. He'd been talking up South Africa to Peter Carter a lot. You have to go visit. He went there on his honeymoon and then tragically he died. So all these things, huge impact. And he actually, you know, he found out in Canada and, uh, you know, running through the streets there, kind of trying to cope with it. And I just think at that moment, it didn't happen right away in the results, but he was able to uh, use that for fuel. And he made, you know, a number of comments in those, in that period of his life to say, I'm going to really try to honor his memory by being the player he thought I could be. And I can think we could all agree he, he succeeded. And it's been, uh, it's been really the thread running through his whole career. It's interesting for me. I'm only a few chapters in so far, but um, didn't realize that Federer's game was modeled in many ways after Peter Carter's as well. Um, Peter, who wasn't quite as powerful, I think you wrote, um, but um, many of the you know, attributes that we see from Federer came from him, actually. Yeah, the, I don't know how much, I don't want to get too far into this, but the one thing that's most interesting to me out of that whole process was, you know, how Roger will hit the ball and keep his eyes on the ball where the ball contact point was on almost all his shots, which makes him the great photographer's target, you know, that it all looks so cool the way he is well peter carter did that um, you going Paul mcpherson told me that and i never knew that until i started working on the book and that just kind of blew me away it just tells you how important that's one of roger's signatures for me he's the only guy on the tour that really does that and all the time and it makes him look so polished and the idea of time and and peter carter did the same thing chris is there anything you left out um of the book either because it didn't um fit so well perhaps or something in hindsight that you would have liked to have explored more if you had more time to to work with things and put in the book? You can't complain too much when they give you over 400 pages, I guess. You kind of, if you can't fit it in, it's your own fault. But because of the way I constructed the book around places, not, a, not around timeline, that was tricky in places because I got to Wimbledon obviously very early because that's when he won for the first time and he played Sampras there and he won the junior title. So that had to be early in the book. But then he played Wimbledon so many times after that and so many important things happened there. So trying to fit it into that structure was, was a challenge. And so one thing that kind of got lost in the cutting room floor was 2012. You know, the Murray-Federer back-to-back uh, -back matches at the All England Club, the Wimbledon final that Roger won, and then the Olympic final that Murray won. Not a lot about that in the book. I had plenty of material. It just didn't really fit into the structure the way I would have liked. It'll fit into the sequel, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready for the sequel quite yet, but I, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you guys about it soon, though. It's, yeah, yeah. I'll give you a little bit of a breather. Um, yeah, so obviously, you know, in this book, you are covering some of his biggest matches, and, and Roger Federer, I think, has been a part of so many of the biggest matches in tennis history. You cover, obviously, his huge wins, comeback victory at the Australian Open in 2017, and also you have to touch on some of the biggest losses. Um, Wimbledon 2008 comes to mind. Um, he, I think, has the understanding that he's part of a special match, but then you're on the losing end of it. Um, what, what is your sense from Roger about how he feels about 2008 Wimbledon when he's reflecting on that? Because it, it's one of those signature moments in tennis history, but he was the loser. Yeah, I mean, Roger, I make this point in the book. I mean, you think about it. He's been a big winner, but he's also been a big loser which is maybe part of the key to his appeal, to be quite honest with you. And he's been humanized by those defeats and how he's reacted to them. I, I know that the 2008 final was very painful at the time. I think he kind of saw it coming. Rafa had destroyed him in the French Open final just a, a month or so before. So he knew he was vulnerable and he knew Rafa was rising. And obviously they had a classic five-setter in the final year before at Wimbledon. So he knew the threat. 
And I think over time, both he and Rafa have realized, um, and that nice documentary, Strokes of Genius, talks about this as well. They both realized that their rivalry is good for them and good for the sport and also good for business. I'm not sure that's the most important thing to them, but it's certainly part of it. And I think they've kind of come to peace with the fact that they would beat each other and lose a time, but that overall the rivalry has been a good thing. And I think they've both embraced it over time. So I think he's at peace with that loss probably. The 2019 loss to Djokovic at Wimbledon, I would imagine is still a bit raw, even though Roger's good at recovering and compartmentalizing. And I don't know, I haven't asked him this question recently, but I, I can only imagine that's very painful because that would have been the ultimate achievement. And he right. was literally within, you know, a couple centimeters of winning that match. The down the middle serve on the tee on the first match point was wide open. Djokovic was leaning the wrong way and it hit the tape and he couldn't seal the deal. So that's got to hurt. How could it not? To wrap up here with you, Chris, we'll step outside of the book for a moment. And recently Roger announced, of course, that he'd have to undergo another surgery on his knee and will be out for what he said was many months. Um, what was your reaction to that news? And what are your hopes for him moving forward in the final stages of his illustrious and, and masterful career? Yeah, I mean, as journalists, we're empathetic too. That's part of the reason we're journalists. You try to you know, understand what your subjects are going through. And um, yeah, I think it's it's a pity in the sense that he obviously worked very hard to come back from the surgeries he had during the pandemic in 2000. And I think he would have thought that whatever he had done would allow him to play unfettered for a while. And obviously that wasn't the case. That has to be tremendously disappointing and concerning because from what I understand this knee surgery, I don't know the details yet, but I don't think it's a really you know, just routine sort of thing. It's going to be a little bit more complicated. And at 40 years old, knowing how important, you know, footwork and foot speed is in tennis and quickness and knowing how much better guys like Tsitsipas and Zverev and Medvedev and Berrettini are getting with this big match experience, you know, it's going to be tougher. So I, I personally don't think we're going to see Roger again uh, at the highest level. He's surprised us for years and he may, he may come back. I just don't think it's going to be possible for him to be a regular um, competitor for those biggest titles anymore. Now, nothing would be a better story than him surprising me and proving me a fool. So I'm ready to write that if it happens. <laughs> and you'll do a great job, no, no doubt. I mean, just as you said, the Rafa-Roger rivalry, so good for tennis. Well, this book is also really good for tennis, and I'm looking forward to, if my kids allow it, finishing it rather quickly. So we'll <laughs> see how that goes. But uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And, and thank you uh, for providing us with an extra copy to give away to one of our lucky listeners uh, on the podcast next week. And uh, I know they'll really enjoy reading it as well. Hey, thanks for the kind words. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the chance to talk with you guys throughout the year. There you have it, Chris Clary. Um, so much great discussion on his book, The Master, The Long and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer, which I am envious that you have a copy already and have worked through the first few chapters. Um, I can't wait to delve into that, especially just um, the opportunity to kind of recount some of those classic matches. So like Federer has played so many unbelievable matches through the course of his career. Like you almost, you, you get lost in how many great ones there are. And um, he also interviewed so many of these players who were on the other side of the net against him. Yeah, he talked to a lot of people to prepare for this uh, book. And uh, I, I got to say, I love a good tennis book. I've got a pretty big collection. So uh, when Chris mentioned this to us the last time he was on the podcast, that he was working on this book, I thought, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on this one. And uh, so he was kind enough to send a copy. I, I didn't wait long to send him a message asking if there was perhaps a way that one could find its way to me here in Toronto. And he was happy to oblige. Uh, I love the title, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. It's just, it seems so, so fitting because um, he's had a heck of a long run. 
And his game, even if you're not a fan of Federer's, it's hard to argue that his game is not beautiful to watch. And, you know, for any Nadal and Djokovic fans out there who are listening, hey, listen, I'm happy to read any books on them too when the yeah. time comes. So just to put that out there, I love reading tennis books on any of these great players. But for right now, this is the one I've got in my hands. So uh, nice to have Chris back on the podcast. And you could tell, um, you know, what a labor of love this has been for him and, and how much work and effort he's put into it behind the scenes. Yeah. And, um, great news because this book could find the hands of uh, one of our lucky listeners. In fact, it will, um, as we, uh, preluded that already in the interview, we do have a book up for grabs, um, and a contest for you to enter. So very simply, I'll give your directions on how to enter our contest and, uh, win a book from Chris Clary is you're going to DM us on either Twitter which is at Matchpoint Can Instagram at Matchpoint Canada, or even Facebook. You can find us Matchpoint Canada. The code word, you can call it a code number, in fact, send us 20. If you send us the code word 20 via DM, please, on either Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, you'll be entered into the draw and we'll give you until uh, next Saturday, which is September 4th by midnight to uh, get into the draw and we'll announce our winner on uh, next week's episode. And I feel like 20 right now is a, is a timely one because that is the magic number that Roger shares with Rafa and Novak for the most grand slams and men's singles. And that's a number and a code word that could be antiquated by the end of this two-week time period if Novak indeed goes ahead and, and gets number 21. We'll have to wait and see on that. But for right now, a great opportunity to get this book in your hands and, and Chris will mail that out to you personally. So um, keep in touch get those uh, messages into us and uh, best of luck for this one, guys. Yeah, certainly. And uh, that's a perfect segue, honestly, into our U.S. Open preview as well. And beginning on the men's field, because we, we've talked already uh, at length with no Nadal, no Roger Federer, no Dominic team either. Um, and it, this feels like Novak Djokovic versus the field. That's at least how I'm kind of viewing this tournament on the men's side. And of course, Djokovic holding that top seed. And you're kind of looking around, eyeing the names, eyeing maybe the spots where he's going to run into trouble, run into danger. And can somebody stop him is the big question from uh, setting history here. And uh, producing a calendar slam would be the first one since uh, 1970. 69 and Rod Laver did it. So I'll ask you, Mike, kind of looking at his draw in the top half, the first week plus, do you see any spots where he could run into trouble? I mean, he's got a very nice draw to me throughout the first week. I can't envision him not making the quarterfinals when I look through that section. Um, Nishikori, how much is left in the tank there? Jan Leonard Struff, I mean, he gives the Canadians trouble, but I don't think he's going to give Novak any trouble. Uh, Dimenauer hasn't uh, looked particularly consistent lately. So there's, you know, and, and Jensen Brooksby was a nice story there in, in DC, but I don't see any of those guys troubling him whatsoever. So I think it's really going to be quarterfinals and beyond. And then is it someone like a Berrettini or a Hercatch who gives him trouble in the quarters? Zverev being in the same half of the draw uh, could be problematic. Obviously, those are the two big names in terms of uh, title contenders at this point. Um, and Zverev with the Olympic result and, uh, and as well in, um, in Cincinnati, um, obviously coming in pretty hot. You know, the one knock against Novak right now is he hasn't played much lately. He didn't go to Toronto. He didn't go to Cincinnati. So that is a considerable break. And his last, you know, comp uh, competition at the Olympics uh, didn't end the way he wanted either as he came up uh, empty handed there. So um, that being said, so much motivation, 
wanting to be in the right mental frame of mind, which I'm sure is the reason he opted not to go to Cincinnati. Um, he's got a big weight on his shoulders. And as I mentioned in our interview with Chris, um, or maybe that was off air with Chris, I just want to see him get to those late stages. I'd love to see him in the finals. And whether it happens or doesn't happen at that point, you know, kudos to him. I want to see him have that moment to play for it in that ultimate match. Yeah, I, I certainly think it would be more exciting if we had him down to the down to the final four with an opportunity at history. And I, I probably agree with you. These first few matches look pretty comfortable for him. Um, you know, Mackenzie McDonald, credit to him. He played great in Washington, made a final. Is it really conceivable he beats Novak Djokovic at the U.S. Open? I don't think so. Aslan Karatsev has really kind of faded in the second half of the season. He's also in that bracket in the top 16 there. Um and then the 16 below, yeah, I, I think you kind of hit on the name uh, who could potentially trouble him in the quarterfinals if he gets there. Hubert Hurkacz uh, has had a terrific season. Of course, he won Miami earlier. I was really, I don't know about you, but I was really impressed watching him live in Toronto. And uh, if we reflect back to some of the tennis he played there, I would say Medvedev was rather fortunate to escape there with the win because Hubert Hurkacz had him on his heels. We remember Hurkacz beating um, not only Medvedev, but Federer as well at Wimbledon beat Roger comfortably with a six love bagel in the third, getting to the semis. So he's very dangerous and uh, has troubled Novak in the past. I recall actually at Wimbledon a couple of years ago. So that could be maybe a spot where he runs into trouble. And we should note we have a couple of Canadians in the top half of the draw. Look, Denis Shapovalov has obviously played very poorly coming into the U.S. Open um, post Wimbledon but I think he has a really nice draw to get started and maybe get some momentum. There's no way he's going down to Del Bonus, Federico Del Bonus. <laughs> that's, I mean, a left, that's a lefty versus lefty matchup, actually, which is rare. Right. So that one, second round also looks uh, pretty decent. Might get Karen Hatchinov in round three, which would be a Wimbledon yes. rematch, and that would be a super exciting one to watch. Uh, although Hatchinov hasn't fared well against Canadians in the past at the U.S. Open, as Vashik took him out a couple of years ago. And let's talk about Vashik for a second. I mean, hey, maybe he could get through his draw. We'd have a, an all-PTPA Djokovic-Pospisil uh, matchup. Those two are, are quite friendly with each other, work well together off the court, obviously. And I think Vashik has upset, um, uh, you know, written all over this one against Fabio Fanini, the 28th seed, the enigmatic Fabio Fanini in the opening round. Vashik has played terrific at the U.S. Open the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly last season was phenomenal. Uh, made the round of 16, and we remember Milos Raonic was coming in so strong, I recall, last year um, coming into the U.S. Open. He made the finals of Cincinnati and almost beat Djokovic there. And we thought maybe it's Milos who has a shot at a deep run. And then we had the all-Canadian encounter in the second round, and Vashik Pospisil played such a good match to beat him, followed it up and beat Roberto Bautista Gut and made the round of 16. So he played some terrific tennis. And I think he plays a lot of his best tennis on the North American hard courts. And yeah, I think this is a nice first, first round draw. Fabio Fanini, you never really know what you're going to get with Fabio. Um, we've seen good performances from him in the past at the US Open. If we recall that that big five set upset of Nadal about five years ago, but he's been pretty inconsistent all year. And I, I think Vashik is comfortable on the surface. And actually he posted on Instagram, he was doing a training session with Novak Djokovic just a few days ago. So they are very tight knit. So yeah, two Canadians in the top half of the draw. Dennis, of course, you'd have to say has the chance for the deepest run, even despite the struggles. I, I think he has a shot, but I could certainly see Vashik winning a couple matches here. 
And it can't get any worse for Dennis on hardcourts this summer. So yeah, exactly. even, a, even winning a round right now is a step in the right direction, which seems kind of weird to say that after how well he did at Wimbledon. In the bottom half of the draw, we got Felix Auger Aliassime, who opens against a qualifier. And I think he's got a nice section to sort of get into this draw as well. Um, Roberto Batista Agu potentially in the third round or Nick Kyrgios if he's got his you-know-what together. And then a fourth round uh, possible matchup against Andre Rublev, which would be super exciting to watch. And, and should Felix get to the quarters, who would probably be you know waiting for him there? Stefano Tsitsipas and those two seem to play each other quite often with the Greek getting the upper hand, although the most recent match was quite close when they uh, faced one another. Yeah, that was an exciting three-setter, and I I really thought Felix turned a corner in Cincinnati. He brushed off the struggles in Toronto really quickly, which was nice to see. So, you know, the ebbs and the flows of the season for Felix, we've had some downs, but Wimbledon obviously was fantastic quarterfinals, and I think he handled himself well in Cincinnati too. So, I'm interested in a couple of these blockbuster first round matches, actually, especially on the bottom half of the draw. As you mentioned, Roberto Bautista Good against Nick Kyrgios is a compelling first round match. Very different styles of play there. Kyrgios will be serving bombs and Bautista Good will be grinding away. And then Stefano Tsitsipas. I, I know Andy Murray. Maybe we don't really view him as a threat. It's just always interesting when he's facing one of these top players and on court and you know he's going to get a ton of crowd support in a matchup with Tsitsipas. And uh, he's such a competitor competitor still even even to this day if he's if he's not quite producing the level he wants it's entertaining to watch him in these matchups anyway yeah I gotta be honest it's kind of sad for me I mean a lot of people are making you know a big deal out of CC Pass versus Andy Murray and I think the actual match itself is going to be a letdown for anyone who's expecting like a five set thriller there because I don't expect that that's true yeah I don't I don't think Andy Murray is anywhere near right now nor would he admit to be anywhere near that level of play the other day he said his game is pretty much around a 50th, the 60th in the right. world kind of level right now. And so to me, it's just sad to see a great champion like that who's unable to get back to where he once was because of being physically held back. His body just won't allow him to train and to prepare and, and to perform like he used to. So um, it's tough. I don't I don't know. I mean, whatever makes him happy and if he's content to continue to try, then that's really all that matters. But I hate seeing some of these great players go out this way. Um, and so, um, you know, my best to him, but I really don't think it's going to, um, produce much in terms of fireworks on the court. CC pass also is at the top of the game for good reason. So, uh, he's expected to go deep here. Um, we want to talk about some dark horse picks here in the, in the tournament. And I know in the past, sometimes we throw out a dark horse pick who's like, you know, seated 12th or something. So we're not going to do that this time. We've both agreed. It's going to be outside of the top 20. You go first. Who have you got on the men's side that could go deep? Yeah, I I have two names in mind, and I will start with the first one. Toronto fans uh, learned uh, his name quite well, given the run that he produced on the hard courts in Toronto, making the final surprisingly before falling to Danil Medvedev. I have to think if Riley Opelka has the serve clicking early on in this tournament, um, and he has a pretty navigable draw here, 22nd seed, he'll start off with a uh, Sun Wu Kwan and then Lorenzo Musetti has been losing a lot potential third round with Pablo Carreño Busta. I think there's an opportunity for Riley Opelka to certainly make a run to the round of 16. If that were to happen, it's possible he lines up actually against Denis Shapovalov if Denis were to say get through Hachinov and is playing good tennis. So I like Opelka in the first week to win a few matches and, and kind of push towards that quarterfinal. We saw, you know, as huge as the serve is, his ground game is quite underrated. He has a couple of blistering 
ground strokes backhand side he can rip down the line and he's especially dangerous because you never really know when he's going to pull the trigger and just go for it so that was that was the big threat that i felt my other dark horse that i will give quickly and i mentioned in the past loving his match with cc pass in toronto as well they played the 28 point tie break ugo on is seated at 23 here um i think he's capable of a bit of a run to the round of 16 as well so those are my two dark horse picks yeah, and Humbert's got a nice draw. I was just looking at his name. Um, I mean, you just went out and stole the guy I was going to talk about, so thanks for that. But uh, You can go into more detail. I didn't say that much. No, you said enough. So I, okay. I think I'm going to have to go with Benoit Pair. I guess. The recent Masters 1,000 quarterfinals. Benoit, I'm just kidding. I'm not wow. going with Benoit Wow, okay, Pair. okay. Uh, I just, you know, had to throw that one you out there. You uh, for a second. <laughs> I mean, Nick Kyrgios, you never know what he's capable of. And while he doesn't have a lot of match play under his belt... Um, you know, he could have taken out Opelka in Toronto with that match we saw until he yep. let himself unravel over whether or not the American's foot touched the net there on that one point. So, you know, if he can get by RBA, he's still going to have a pretty tough go because he's got Felix in that quadrant and then Rublev. But what the heck? You took my guy, so I'm going to go with Kyrgios for mine, I guess. Okay, okay, that's 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 very that's very kind of you. I wouldn't take issue if you took Ugo on bear. Um, so we should kind of break this down here. So Novak Djokovic versus the field. Who are your kind of top guys to, to stop him? If, if anybody who's on the short, short list. I mean, we talked about him earlier. Hubert uh, Hurtcatch, I think for me, is someone who is, is prime for a moment here and looks so good against Medvedev in Toronto. Medvedev said he got outplayed for sure, which was true for most of the match. So I think he's uh, a possible one um, in that, uh, in that top half. And uh, in the bottom half, um, I got no one who's like out of left field. So, you know, a Rublev, a CC pass. Um, it'd be great if Felix could put it together. I'd really like to see him, obviously, as most of our Canadian listeners would too. Um, but uh, yeah, hurt catch for someone who's maybe a little bit outside of the, the obvious ones. 10th mm-hmm. seed and, um, and someone who's just been getting better and better in my mind over the last year or so. Okay, fair enough. And uh, we can move on. We don't have to give final. Do you want to give final picks for this or no? No, I'm done with that. I'm, I'm, I've been burned so many times in the <laughs> yeah, past. And that's and fair. We've been, we've been accused of jinxing so many players lately that <laughs> I, we got to maintain some sort of listener base here on the podcast. So I'm I agree. Gonna pa- I'm going to pass hard on that one. I agree with that. We'll shift over to the uh, women's field, the women's side of things. And, um, Let's start before we kind of get into the draw. The Canadians that we do have have there. Layla Fernandez is competing. Bianca Andrescu. I don't know if she's treating this as defending her title. She's not. There was a title winner in 2020, but uh, this is her return to the U.S. Open for the first time since 2019. And she'll open against Victoria Golovic, a pretty good Swiss player. Uh, Layla Fernandez has a qualifier and Rebecca Marino still competing in qualifying. Just kind of early stages. First round matches. What we see what do you gauge in terms of chances for the Canadians? Well, I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty worried for Bianca, given what we've seen. And, you know, we talked about that recently on our last episode featuring Petra Kvitova, for those who listened to that one. And uh, Bianca's gone four and six since her run to the finals in Miami. Um, Not sure how the foot is doing these days. Not sure how her confidence is doing these days. And I think she's lost that fear factor that other players had back in 2019 when they had to face her in a draw, the fact that she was beat by uh, Mugova in straight sets recently also was a troubling sign for me that it it wasn't pushed to a competitive level there. So when I look at the draw, I like what I see for her, but she's been losing to all kinds of names lately. So it also wouldn't shock me if she went out in the first or second round. 
unfortunately, given what we've been looking at lately. Yeah, I, I will say I feel like she got quite a break in terms of the draw that she does have. She's at the bottom, uh, right at the bottom of the top half, seated sixth. And you look at that section of the draw, there's a lot of qualifiers in there. Victoria Golovich, nice player, nice one-handed back. And actually, we'll remember Leila Fernandez when she won her first uh, career WTA title. She beat Golovich in the finals. Um, so Bianca, if she has things working, should overpower her. Then in that section, Yelena Ostapenko, you never know what you're going to get from her. Lauren Davis, the American. So there's not really many threats for those first couple of matches if she can just you know, get a match win under her belt. Maybe there's momentum to be had and possibly make a round of 16. Um, other, also in that section, Petra Kvitova is seated 10th. And then kind of just above that, Pavlochenkova is in the mix. Looking at the top half, Ash Barty, number one seed. And this is the first time I think I've gone into a Grand Slam on the women's side in a while and just been con- confident to say Ash Barty is the favorite to win the U.S. Open. Yeah, I agree with that statement as well. Um, although she is going to have a, a tough path, I feel like she might get Jen Brady in the fourth round and then possibly another American who's been terrific this summer, Jessica Pagula. Um, and and those aren't going to be easy matches. Those players are both uh, fighters. I could see three sets on on either or both of those. And I mean, then you get to the quarters and semis and there's not going to be any easy matches there either. How is she going to handle the pressure of being the overwhelming favorite at this tournament? Um, we'll have to wait and find out. But um, yeah, if you're going to pick someone right now, I mean, it would be her or Osaka to me, who's won the event two of the past three times, including last year in a very entertaining final against uh, Victoria Azarenka. So yeah, as per usual, there's so many names on the women's side. And, and when it comes to dark horses, I mean, I, we could throw out, I feel like 15 or 20 names and nobody would laugh at us because you'd say, oh, yeah, that is a pretty darn good player. And, and she could look, look at Camila Georgie recently in Montreal and what she did. Right. So um, I don't know if I'm pushing you into that dark horse um, conversation <laughs> a little early here, but uh, I guess we might as well now that I've committed to it. So, yeah, as look, as you kind of hit on very clearly, there are a lot of names outside of the top 20 realm that could certainly do damage. I mean, you named one as a threat already with Jessica Bagula. She's not even inside the top 20 of seeds. So that tells you how deep this field is. Um, the name that I'm going to go with, actually, she played some incredible marathon matches in Cincinnati just this past week, had a couple incredible wins. She beat Sabalenka in three sets and got to the quarterfinals before ru- finally running out of gas. It's uh, Spain's Paula Bedosa, who has had such a breakout season, um, somewhat out of nowhere. And I-, I think initially, kind of earlier on in the year, her success, she got her first WTA title. I thought she was really just a clay court player, but she translated that nicely over to Wimbledon where she made the round of 16. And then Artie just at the Cincinnati masters to make quarterfinals just tells me she's an all surface player who can be dangerous everywhere. And uh, a win against Sabalenka really stood out to me. So impressive that um, she'll be my number one dark horse pick. At least she's seated 24th here and uh, who knows, she could certainly make some noise. Yeah, well, the nice thing about doing the dark horse picks on the women's side is we're not going to have the same one because there's so many to choose from. It'd be almost impossible Perfect. for that yeah. to happen. Whereas on the men's side, I thought it was really tough to think of someone outside of the top 20 with a legit chance of, of going deep there. But for me, I'm going to go with Marketa Vondruzova, who I mm. think has a nice draw. Um, she may face Fidelina in the third round, but Alina Fidelina has never proven to be, to me, the consistent force there. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if she went out. And, and otherwise, I mean, you've got Georgie in there. 
Simona Halep in that section of the draw, who admittedly does not have the confidence or the match play under her belt these past few months um, to, to probably have a deep run here. So, yeah, that would be my pick, the former French Open finalist. And uh, she did well at the Olympics, too, didn't she, a few weeks Recent, ago? Recent uh, silver medalist as well. Right. She was playing great tennis and, and beat Osaka there. Uh, so she should feel very confident, I think, coming into the U.S. Open. I do want to talk a little bit more about Naomi Osaka because you mentioned, like, she has won the U.S. Open two of the past three times, but it's hard to get like a full evaluation of where her game is at right now. I mean, she played two matches in Cincinnati. She beat Coco Goff in a, a quality three-set match. I thought she played well there. And then she lost to Jill Teichman, who was a surprise finalist. The Olympics obviously didn't go the well uh, the way she wanted. And, you know, we, she missed Wimbledon and left the French Open earlier and has, you know, of course, been so open about these mental health issues, which I think she is still uh, and has acknowledged is, is still kind of working and, and dealing with at this time. Yeah, I think uh, being back there in press is something that she's still not quite prepared for. Right. Um, because who knows who's going to ask that question that, uh, I mean, at this point, I don't know what else she can say on the matter. So I feel like posing any question about it directly is is really just reopening fresh wounds that what, what more do we need to hear from her and, and why the need to, to badger or bring it up just to potentially draw attention to yourself as a member of the media. Um, I know there was that recent one in, in Cincinnati with a, a member of the press from the Cincinnati Inquirer that kind of divided people on, you know, that, uh, that question and, and response. I didn't find when I listened to the question that, that to me it was worded or, or toned in a way that was offside. But at the same point, what, what more, as I said, do right. we need to get out of her on that subject? So couldn't we focus on other things at this point? So who knows what her headspace is in, but I feel like there's plenty of distractions. And yet, if there's a place where things could kind of correct and get back on track, why not at a venue where she's had so much success, her first slam um, and, and a recent one as well. So I think for Naomi Osaka, uh, anything is possible. And, and I'd love to see her have a good run here. I think most people would. Yeah, and I feel like the pressure should not be the same as it often is as defending champion when you're making a return to full crowd, whereas they played last year with no crowd. I, I feel like it's you're entering a completely different environment and atmosphere. I, I feel like it's going to, in in some ways, be a much different tournament that la than last year, that I don't think she's going to be carrying the weight of pressure of like, I'm defending this title. I, I think it's going to be a little different this time around. And uh, interesting first round from her uh, first round for her, actually, Marie Boscova is a tricky opening round. But after that, I think things open up. Actually, if Layla Fernandez can make a couple things happen, that's a conceivable third round matchup. Uh, Arena Sabalenka is at the bottom half of the draw is the number two. I've wanted to pick her as saying, like, well, this is certainly a player who can win a Grand Slam. There's no doubt about that. To me, she has a pretty ruthless draw. Uh, you look early, a few of the names who are in this section, Danielle Collins could happen early on. Ons Jabur, who's been playing amazing tennis, is right in the mix in that in that section of 16 players. Barbara Krejci uh, Krejcikova is also, Krejcikova, pardon me, is also in that section uh, for a potential quarterfinal. I just feel like there are too many landmines here for Arena Sabalenka to, to navigate and kind of make a final. Yeah, I agree as well. There, there are a lot of the Mazarenka's in there as well. And yeah, and they had a, a, a pretty competitive two set match recently. So um, it's it's a big ask, I think, when you see all of those sort of landmines in that in that draw for her. Um, but even in the women's draw, just the first round, my goodness, how many big first round matchups are there? Um, Yastremska against Kerber. 
Halep against Georgie, Vekic against Muguruza. Uh, and to me, the, the best one is the, the rematch of the 2017 final between Americans and good friends Sloane Stevens and Madison Keys, with the winner likely getting Coco Goff. So that is just fireworks from the get-go in New York in the women's draw. And I hope those first-round matches aren't all going simultaneously. <laughs> I want to watch all of those ones I just mentioned. Yeah, definitely some amazing matchups. I, I always find we, we get better opening round matchups on the women's side than the men's, um, which is a consistent quality in terms of depth where you have so many players in that 20 to 40, 20 to 50 range even who can who can do damage. Uh, we said we weren't going to make picks, so we are not going to make any predictions here. As I said, I, I will just say I think Ash Barty is the slight favorite to win this title. That doesn't mean I'm picking her to win this title. Uh, before we wrap, I should say we have a Paralympian competing in wheelchair quads um, who is down in Tokyo right now. And I had the opportunity to speak with him, uh, who is Rob Shaw. He had an amazing 2019 season, and we talked about this. Six titles, including uh, a major one, the Parapan Games in Lima, which was a big breakthrough for him. And unusual for him as well, because after the 2019 season, it was a complete shutdown of all competitive matches. So he hasn't, it, he hasn't competed since then. Am I right? He is not. So this is like back to competitive matches for the first time. Obviously we talked about his training uh, and keeping that going, which he does in BC. So I'll let you listen to my interview with the uh, Paralympian Rob Shaw. So happy right now to be joined by Canadian Paralympic athlete and wheelchair tennis star, Rob Shaw, who's uh, taking the time to speak with us from Tokyo. Uh, Rob, thanks so much uh, for joining us on, on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, we, uh, we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, you're just get, getting settled in. And uh, as we just before we started recording, you mentioned um, you're getting the lay of the land. Just just first of all, how excited are you to, to be right in Tokyo and, and have this opportunity to, to compete and represent your country? Yeah, I'm just really eager to start the competition. I think for many of us athletes all around the world, it's been a, um, a long two years of no competition. You know, some countries over in Europe have had that ability to travel a little more freely and experience competition, but as Canadians, it's been kind of challenging with all the quarantine. So the excitement is there just for being here, but the eagerness to get on court and hit a ball that actually means more than this practice um, has me pretty, pretty excited. Yeah. And, um, you know, looking back at, at what you managed to accomplish in 2019 was such a great season for you um, in wheelchair tennis, winning six titles, obviously Lima, you, you captured um, the title at the Parapan American Games. And yeah, I guess I had that thought in my head, head, what have you been able to do kind of in those two years since? So what has training and, and what has life looked like since then without competition? Yeah, 2019 was a really good year. And we were, um, myself and my team at least felt like I was sort of peaking at the right time. So when Tokyo did get postponed, we had to sort of reevaluate the entire training schedule and like re-periodize everything, the strength training, the on-court training. So for me, it's still been a lot of on-court training, um, splitting my time between Kelowna and Vancouver to experience more match play scenarios down in Vancouver. There's a larger hub of wheelchair tennis players to actually have some match play against. Whereas in Kelowna, I'm sort of the only high performance athlete there for wheelchair tennis. So splitting my time between those two locations over the last, for sure, the last five to six months prior to that, we were basically in full lockdown over in Kelowna. So um, didn't really leave the city, just trained with my local coaches there. 
and did whatever you could to stay in shape as far as, um, you know, getting some equipment uh, delivered to the condo, um, some strength equipment, cardio equipment, and just minimizing your, your exposure to, uh, to COVID essentially. So yeah, it's been a lot of, a lot of training. The training itself, I don't think has suffered that much. It's just translating that into a match. You can only really do if you have those match opportunities. So Right. Well, well, fortunately, those match opportunities are, are coming up with uh, the wheelchair quads starting up August 28th. And um, yeah, I, I guess the follow up to that, um, how are you feeling about your game just just when you're on court? Do you feel like things are, are there and clicking going into this event? Yeah, I think stroke wise, I'm hitting a really good tennis ball. The challenge in Tokyo is there's a lot of humidity, which for certain athletes like myself that don't have very good hand function, I depend on a lot of contact with my push rim between my, my rubber glove and my rubber push rim. So when it's really humid, the, the moisture in the air sort of clings to both those surfaces and makes it uh, a little more difficult to get that friction to actually push. So I am missing a lot of my pushes, which we're trying to solve over the next two days before competition starts. But when I get to the balls, I think I'm hitting them pretty well. So if we can sort out the, the pushing situation, then I think, um, yeah, I might have a, an opportunity to make some upsets here. Uh, if we don't figure out the pushing situation, it's going to be a, uh, a tough one. Okay. And, um, yeah, for, for some of our listeners who, who don't know you yet, and you know, you suffered an accident 10 years ago. Um, the most fascinating aspect, I think for me in your tennis is, was basically what you're talking about, because, um, I've read that you do have limited function in your hands. And as someone who plays tennis myself, um, use of hands seems so pivotal to having success on the tennis court. H- how do you kind of manage manage that limited function in your hands what what are the solutions around that and how do you make it work successfully for you yeah in my division um people like myself who tape their hand in to their racket are a bit of a dying breed um and that's what most of us who who do have a uh, either a spinal cord injury or um, impairment to all four limbs have to do so i tape my hand in with hockey tape like a good canadian boy should uh, <laughs> and, then, uh and then i use reverse duct tape to add some tack to the outside so that when I'm pushing against my, my wheelchair push rim, um, I have a little bit of stick there. Um, but obviously, you know, the big, uh, the big limitation there is that I only have one grip for all my strokes. So when I'm playing opponents who have full grip, uh, you know, there are shots for me that are just way more challenging to do doing volleys with a semi-Western grip. Um, is just not how you're supposed to do that stroke doing a backhand slice with a semi-Western grip, not how you're supposed to do that stroke. So there's a lot of balls where I just simply can't hit the shots that my opponents can hit because of their ability to change their grip and have that full hand function. Uh, but you work around it, right? I mean, you develop your own weapons and um, you make uh, you make the most of what you have. And we'll uh, we'll get into some of those weapons that you have on the tennis court shortly. But um, uh, for for you, you know, you've been really uh, a big part of the boom, I think, of tennis in this country and and what we've experienced over the past decade or so. Um, obviously, Bianca winning the U.S. Open a couple of years ago, the success right now of Denis Shapovalov, Felix Ojeda-Aliassim, Milos Raonic, Jeannie Bouchard, Gabby Dabrowski, The list goes on and on. Obviously, um, for you, what do you think the current state of wheelchair tennis is in Canada right now? Do you see future champions down the line and, and maybe growth in, the, in that aspect of the game as well? Yeah, I think that at the grassroots level, I think we're doing a pretty good job of introducing the sport to, to new people, to new adults, to new children. Um, the challenge always with wheelchair tennis is to 
foster that development into a competitive stream. It's, in my opinion, one of the one of the more challenging uh, wheelchair sports to pick up um, just because of the complexity of not only moving your chair, but also learning how to hit a tennis ball, mm-hmm. uh, changing your grip, understanding the game. It's a big court to cover. So I think it's easy to get people in at the recreational level, but to um, push them to become competitive is, is challenging. We lose a lot of, a lot of players to basketball. We lose a lot of players to rugby um, just because those sports afford them probably more opportunity to grow in the sport at a faster rate. So I think we're doing a pretty good job um, as far as future champions down the, down the line. I mean, we have some, some great men's players right now. We have uh, Thomas, Thomas Vinos. Uh, he's playing down in Alabama right now. Um, and then we also have Barry Henderson, who's um, coming into the game a bit late, but also a high quality player. So I think on the men's side, we're doing, we're doing great women's. We have a bit of a, a dry spell right now, but um, I, we have some women coming up the lines and then in the quad division, you know, it's uh, myself and Mitch and Gary still playing as well, but yeah, we need to somehow figure out how to uh, push some of these rec players to pursue it competitively. And hopefully some of those names you mentioned uh, the, on the WTA and ATP tour um, can inspire some of these players to, you know, want to pick it up more seriously. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, you're doing a great job as an ambassador and inspiring fellow athletes as well. And we're looking forward to watching you here in Tokyo. Um, good way to wrap. Um, sometimes we do rapid fire questions with a few of our guests to get you get to know you a little bit better. So we're going to finish on that note if you're ready and you can answer as quickly as possible. Um, we'll start with an easy one. Would you consider yourself a morning or a night person? A morning person, hands down. That's good. Actually, most of our guests say night, so it's, it's refreshing to hear a morning person. Uh, that's good. Um, what does your ideal breakfast look like? Uh, hard-boiled eggs, uh, tomatoes that are stewed, green beans, oatmeal, yogurt, banana, kiwi, orange juice. Oh, very nice and detailed. Okay. What, uh, what is your strongest shot on, on the tennis court? Forehand, no question. Forehand, Okay. Would you describe yourself as an introvert or an extrovert? Introvert. Okay. Who's one person you really admire? My parents. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that, that, that is two people, but yes, my parents. Um, if you were not playing tennis, what would you be doing? Wow. Uh, probably doing research, to be honest, research with... Um, with people with disabilities and hopefully in some sort of sports sector as well. And, um, last one, what was the biggest signature win of your career? One, one that you're most fond of, uh, when I won the Birmingham open right after Lima, it was the first time I had won that Canadian tournament. I had lost the finals the year before. Um, I had to play three top 10 players en route to winning it. And uh, as a tennis player, it's, I find it's not easy to win a tournament, but it's really hard to win the next tournament after a win. So to be able to come off a big win in Lima and then win on, on home soil um, was a huge win for me. Yeah, uh, de- definitely. And part of just an amazing season for you in 2019. Rob, um, thanks so much for, for taking the time from Tokyo. Um, can't wait to watch you uh, in the Paralympic paralympic games and we hope you can manage the humidity okay get that good grip down and and make some noise and and uh, we consider you a medal hopeful so uh we're very excited to see you play yeah thanks for having me done
There you have it, my conversation with Rob Shaw, who's getting set to compete at the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. First round for the wheelchair quads uh, starts up uh, this Saturday. And interesting that he said the biggest challenge with the humidity in Tokyo, he has limited hand function. So he was talking about his pushes off his wheelchair and getting a quality grip and they're trying to work on making adjustments to make the grip easier, especially with the tricky humidity in Tokyo, which we saw the uh, athletes, you know, deal with just in July as well. Yeah, even in good conditions, I'm always so amazed at what these athletes, men and women are able to do out there and how difficult it is, even with two bounces to get to that ball. I mean, if you and me tried it, it would be ridiculous. We wouldn't have a hope in hell of, of being able to be competitive out there. So, so much respect for what these athletes do. And uh, the heavy favorite here at these games is, is Dylan Alcott uh, from Australia, who won gold in both singles and doubles in Rio in 2016. And I really liked his quote recently, which was, our biggest barrier is your lack of expectations, talking about the importance of the Paralympics. And I think it's a good reminder that, you know, once the Olympic Games finishes, that, that's not it for this high-level international competition. The Paralympics are here. Check out these athletes. Take the time to get to know them and see what they can do. You'll be absolutely amazed. And so, especially for the Canadian contingency in tennis who didn't fare well in Tokyo at the Olympic Games, maybe the Paralympics with Rob here can, uh, can get us a medal. Yeah, yeah, it's an opportunity. Uh, he has a good attitude towards it, kind of very pressure-free. I know he's thrilled to have the opportunity to compete again and be in Tokyo. So I, I think he's really taking it all in. Um, so we, we can't wait to watch him and, and follow his progress. As I said, it will start Saturday and uh, run just right through, I believe, until the Tuesday. So it's a nice quick tournament, wheelchair quads, and we have our one Canadian representative, Rob Shaw. All right, we got a full U.S. Open preview episode in the books a book available for our listeners please enter our contest remember for a chance to win chris clary's uh, book by uh, the master the long and beautiful game of roger federer and you've been listening to match point canada we will talk to you next time